Heavenly Father, we thank you for your care for us. We thank you for your grace that has seen everything that we've ever done, past, present and future. It has still lavished your love upon us in Christ. And we thank you that your promises to us are not discredited by our failings, by our struggles with our fleshliness. Lord, we thank you that you are patient and you persist with us in ways in which nobody else in this world ever would. Lord, we pray for the grace of your transforming work within us, uh, that there might be less and less of the flesh and more and more of your children walking by your spirit. We pray that through our time together looking at your word, uh, that you might have your good work within us to make us more like your son, for the display of your glory and for the proclamation of your gospel and for the building up of your people and the testimony to those who do not yet know you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When you go through any of the gospel accounts, otherwise meaning the good news, we see in them the declaration of the most important aspects of the Christian faith. Jesus' death on behalf of sinners and his resurrection. But authors like John and Matthew, Mark and Luke and all of the other biblical authors do not write merely for the purpose of communicating and writing down these things happened and this is what people said. John in particular gives us a reason why he wrote the things in which he wrote. In chapter 20 he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you may have life in his name. No part of the Bible was written just so that we might have information about events that transpired or things that were said. The Bible is God's word to us and it demands a response. A response that we believe. And that by believing, which doesn't just mean with agreeing with the facts of what is presented, but it means entrusting forever ourselves to these things, that we might have life in his name. I guarantee if you go down to any bookshop, you will find a whole wall full of things designed to improve your life or self-help books. The Bible was not written in order that we might improve the life that you already have. The Bible is written that you may have the life that you were created for. Not that you get an upgrade but that you would become a new creation in Christ, that you'd be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But when you read through the Gospels, even though we expect Jesus is going to die, he's going to be raised on the third day, Jesus plainly stated that to his disciples, saying that it is necessary that the Son of Man must be handed over to the chief priests and scribes and suffer many things, be crucified and on the third day be raised. When he's arrested, the disciples don't think, 
Oh, it's on its course. It's about to take place. In fact, they, they flee in fear with the exception of John and Peter who follow from a distance. Then Peter denies Jesus three times. He goes so far to say, I don't even have a clue who he is. Never mind associating me as his follower. I don't even have a clue who this bloke is. Then there's a trial where the person who has the authority to sentence Jesus says, I don't sign anything wrong with this guy. Yet against all odds, Jesus is crucified exactly according to the scriptures. And then what might seem like an embarrassment to us, none of Jesus' followers on that third day were anticipating or expecting Jesus to be raised from the dead. And it wasn't until they saw them with their own eyes that they finally believed what Jesus had said. Amongst those was Thomas, who when he saw Jesus says, My Lord and my God. To which Jesus turns and says to him, You believe because you've seen. How blessed are those who believe who have not yet seen. So there you go. There's some benefits for living at this particular point in history. But when Peter, sorry, Jesus has taken Peter to task, saying, Who do you say I am? Peter had got it right. He says, You are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. Jesus affirms that God is the one who's revealed that to him, not flesh. And then he said to him, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You think, oh, that didn't stand the test of time too well. This is what Jesus says is going to be Peter's role, and he is denied even knowing who Jesus is. Imagine that in a business sense. You give somebody the job and before they even start the position, they completely deny everything that's essential for that job. I don't imagine you'd remain employed in that situation very long. I mean, it's very hard to build Jesus and his church if someone's going to totally have nothing to do with him. But how does Jesus interact with this seemingly failed candidate for ministry? We're going to look at commissioning a failed disciple for ministry. We're going to have a little side note on um, the Greek words used for love. Following Jesus to death in 18 to 19, how we should worry about ourselves, 20 to 25, and wrapping up with God uses faithful failures. Firstly, commissioning a failed disciple for ministry. Now, last week we looked at chapter 21, verses 1 to 14, at which point we saw Jesus do a miracle very similar to one that he'd done earlier on, right back when he first called the disciples. In Luke chapter 5, he did a very similar miracle. They were out fishing all night. They'd caught absolutely nothing. But at Jesus' word, they placed the net on the other side and they caught a bountiful amount. The one we looked at last week in John 21, post-resurrection, they'd caught 153. The first time that miracle transpired was when Jesus was calling his disciples for the first time to follow him 
And he says, this is like a visual image. You are soon going to be fishers of men. You are soon going to be the ones who call a people into the kingdom of God. And despite the fact that they all fled and Jesus denied, we see in those 14 verses, Jesus saying, you know what? That's still my mission for you guys. Your failure, your turning your back, hasn't changed my ability to work in and through you. So after breakfast, if you can even call it breakfast when there wasn't bacon, it was really just like the first fillet of fish, bread and fish, Jesus asked Peter a question. And to be honest, it's a, it's a fair question to ask for someone who's denied him three times. When they'd finished breakfast without bacon... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Now, throughout these verses, Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? But on the first one's a little bit different than all of the others. He says, do you love me more than these? What's the these the fillet of fish they just had the fishing equipment the boat the other disciples around them what do you think is it important the reason why I ask that is that there are some people who when they read the scriptures are inclined to pour out all their power and energy into the details that are not specified. Yet if the Bible is truly God's word given to us and has contained everything we need for life and godliness, if it is not specified, it's probably not important. We don't want to get distracted trying to find out the fine details that God didn't think were important enough to include. Even in Peter's response to that question, he doesn't even address that part of the question. He just says, you know that I love you. Which is more than just saying, yes, I do love you. He, knowing that Jesus at various times throughout his ministry had demonstrated an ability to know the things that the people were thinking, Peter says, you know that I love you. And Jesus responds with a command or a commission, feed my lambs. Now, throughout the Gospels, especially John, there's a strong emphasis of the shepherd and the sheep imagery, particularly climaxing in Jesus saying, I am the great shepherd. But then throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets were referred to as shepherds or as the priests were referred to as shepherds. Those whose responsibility and duty was to feed the people of God the word of God to provide for their spiritual maturity, the things that they need to draw them closer to him. And so this is what Jesus is saying to Peter. Provide for my people what will grow them spiritually. Teach them my word. Like we see in the book of Acts, that phrase that I love, the word of God multiplied and prevailed mightily. In one sense, you could think we could probably knock the whole Jesus and Peter interaction out here because 16 and 17 just sounds a little bit like 
vain repetition. Do you love me? Yeah, you know I love me back and forth. But why the repetition? Is Jesus not so sure if whether or not Peter loves him? Because Peter's already said, you know that I love you. I think more than anything has to do with who he's talking to. This is Peter who on three occasions had flatly denied Jesus. Yet here is Jesus every time recommissioning, feed my sheep, tend to my lambs, feed my lambs. The fact that Peter had had denied Jesus on three occasions didn't disqualify him from God being able to use him in the call to build his church. It was a reversal of the threefold denial with a threefold commissioning. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm 100% committed to everything I've said before. Not only for Peter, but for you and I, your failures, and we've got them, do not surprise Jesus, nor do they hinder his ability to work in and through you. But it's also worth noting when Jesus asked, do you love me? He connects it so intimately with, feed my sheep. From his perspective, the greatest way you can show your love for Christ is to feed and nourish his people. Provide for them. Teach them. Instruct them in the Lord. Instruct them in the word. Remember why John wrote? He wrote that people might believe that they might have life in his name. And so if we want to take that common phrase of living your best life, if you want to live your best life and if you want your friends to live their best life, then provide them with the things that will lead them to maturity in Christ. We see that it is God's intent in Romans chapter 8 that he predestined us for the purpose that we might be conformed to the image of his son. So that's God's desire for us. It should be our desire for us. It should be our desire to see that happening in the life of all that call upon his name. Now I know I've said on a number of occasions, Eastgate is a church that works really well as a family. Caring for one another, nurturing one another, providing for one another. But like as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, don't just think, okay, we've peaked, we're there. He says, and do so all the more as you see the day approaching. Not that the world would know that we are Eastgaters by our love, but they would know that we are disciples of Christ. Now, it's not a foreign concept to connect a love for God with a love for people. As we know, when Jesus was asked what are the most important commands, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, soul and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. So while we're talking about love, as the great 80s band foreigner says, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I knew Jenny would like that one. Her little snigger there in the background. So just a little side note on love and the Greek words that get used and some things that are often said. Now you've probably heard sermons where there are, the central point comes down to a distinction made saying there are three Greek words for love, they mean these three different things and this is how they're used in the Bible and that decides how you interpret certain passages of scripture. 
I'm going to apologise in advance. I'm going to upset you with some of your favourite sermons. Firstly, there are not three Greek words for love in the Bible. There are three Greek words for love, but one of them doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. The three Greek words and the explanations you are often given are these. Eros, the one which is not included in the Bible, meaning an erotic love. You can see where that goes with some of our modern English words. Philos, usually described as being a love that one has for a brother or a friend. Or agape, being described as being an unconditional love, like a love that God has. Now, as familiar as we might all be with those words and those explanations of those words, let's see if those definitions actually stand up when you, say, apply them to the passage that we've just read. When they'd had breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Agape, do you love me with an unconditional godlike love? More than these. And Peter said to him, yes, you know that I love you like a brother or a friend. And then Jesus says, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me unconditionally like God would love? And Peter said, yes, you know that I love you like a a friend or a brother. And he said to him, tend to my sheep. Then Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me like a brother or a friend? He's lowered the bar now, according to those definitions. Peter was grieved because he'd said to him a third time, do you love me like a brother or a friend? So Peter's now saying he said this one three times. And he says to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you like a brother or a friend. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. So when you look at it like that, you think, those words just get used interchangeably all the time. To make a distinction of how they should be understood as strictly as those definitions I put up there before, you can't really sustain them. It's just like basic grammar things. You hand something into your English teacher and they say, get a thesaurus, you keep using the same word. To give you other examples in John's Gospel, it says the Father loves the Son in John 3.35 where he uses agape. Yet he also says the Father loves the Son. John 5.20 uses philos. It says Jesus loves Lazarus, 11, chapter 11, verse 5, agape. Chapter 11, verse 36, philos. And not only that, agape is not always used in a positive sense. You look at 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas, in love, agape with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So there it's described as someone who's gone, gone back to, into worldliness. Not necessarily an un- unconditional God-only love. So when you look at the way in which the Bible uses these terms, you see there's not a major measurable distinction between agape and philos. So it makes no sense that Jesus would ask for an unconditional love and then think, no, but if the best you can do is like a brother or a friend, I'll I'll settle for that. So there's that little rant over, but shows some of the dangers of when someone uses languages in a sermon and, and we don't know Greek or Hebrew and we think, he stated, I'll have to take his word for it. But let's get back to Peter. Sorry, Jesus is a bit rude to cut you off mid-sentence for a little rant. But it's an important note to make. Following Jesus to death. 
Jesus continues, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Like at first it kind of thinks, well, that's a strange little tangent in the conversation. Here he's saying, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Now he's like, now soon there's going to come a time when you know, someone else has to dress you, they're going to stretch out your hands and you're going to die. Like he's just been commissioned to his ministry, but also told, guess what? It's going to end up in death. Now in one sense, that shouldn't be a surprise. Jesus did say, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now, tradition records that Peter was crucified upside down. Now, when I say tradition, it means there are people who wrote about it centuries after his death. So it may not have happened. It may have happened. It might have been something that people talked about and then people wrote it down later. But it may not have happened. It might be just like the the Acts of Peter, a book that was written later on that claimed that there was a herring hanging in a shop window and he put it into water and he brought it back to life. Unlikely, but it might have happened. But it's not exactly modern marketing, is it? Follow me and you're going to be crucified. But the fact that Peter and thousands of Christians have walked down that line knowing that is exactly the trajectory of following Jesus was going to take them in their setting says something enormous about the value that they have placed upon Christ that they would consider him and making him known far more valuable than even their own life. But for Peter, who'd previously denied Jesus, I'd imagine these words are somewhat of a comfort. Because if I was Peter, I'd probably be thinking in the back of the head, what's the odds that I'm going to do the same thing again? When put under the pump that I'm going to to deny Jesus and it's all going to come to nothing. But Jesus has not only recommissioned him, but he says, you know what? You're going to do this to the day you die. You're going to be in this mission to the day you die and the death you die will be for the glory of God. Now as we talk about worrying about yourself, now that Jesus has expressed something by way of insight into Peter's death, it's natural that you kind of start asking a few little questions in your head and as, as Peter looks around and he sees the disciple that Jesus loved, Presumably John, the author of this gospel, he's like, what about him? How's things going to pan out for him? Am I the only guy that's going to have this, this dud ending you've told me about? It's kind of human nature in one extent. He, Peter might have been concerned for John. But sometimes when God calls us to something hard, rather than us saying, how, what would you, is it you're calling me to do? What would you like me to do? Sometimes we think, what about, what about these others? Is, is it just me or, or are they going to get something too? And Jesus gives that word that probably many parents have given to their kids. You worry about yourself. Don't you worry about what your brother or sister are doing. You just worry about yourself. If he's going to remain until I come again, that's none of your business. And that same principle applies to every single one of us when it comes to Christian living. 
Your standard is not the people who are around you. Your standard is Christ and what he has made known to us in the scriptures. That is what you are aiming for. That is what you are asking God in prayer to work in and through you by your spirit, not to compare yourself to other people around you. Just like you might do that in a sermon or in a book, think, oh, how much does someone else need to hear this? We should always ask, what does this say about me? How have I responded? How should I have responded? But here's an encouragement to me that spends a fair bit of time in preaching and teaching ministry. In response to Peter's question about John, this is what takes place. Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So Jesus is taught quite plainly. So the saying spread among the other brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not going to die, but that if, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So as someone who spends a lot of time doing teaching ministry, it's good to know that even Jesus was misunderstood by people that he taught plainly. So much so that even John has to point it out. That's not what he said. So that's an encouragement for me, but there's also a good lesson for those who hear and sit under people's teaching. That is, if something sounds odd, rather than talking to everyone around you and saying, oh, this person said that, maybe go ask the person who spoke it um, as to what they actually meant. And then the Gospel concludes with a reminder Despite all of the glorious things that we see recorded in the Gospels, it's like, that's only a small glimpse. Jesus did far more things than were written down, so much that all of the world couldn't contain the books if they were all written down. Like there's part of us that sometimes thinks, man, if I just saw all of those things that are recorded in the Gospels, how exciting would that be? If you were there in the first century, you may have seen far more than even all of those things that were recorded. But even more than that, one day we will see him in all of his glory. Now as we ponder the glory of the Lord, it can tend to make us feel a little bit small. Sometimes the thought of being called his ambassadors, being called to live according to the high calling of the gospel, it's pretty easy to feel, man, I'm a failure. There's no way that God could work in and through me. I've, I've wrecked it up. I did this thing. Join the queue. I'd put myself in that line. Jesus does not give up on his people. He said he'll never leave, never forsake us. In fact, I encourage you, when you read through the Bible, you think about some of the heroes of the faith, so to speak, and find one of them that hasn't had a major failure at some point, you'll find that's actually a pretty hard task to find. But they repented, they trusted, and God continued to use them. If I or if any of us allowed our past actions or even future actions to determine what God could or could not do through us, I guarantee you, every single one of us will do nothing. We'll write ourselves off. 
And we rightly should write off our own ability to do something, but we should never write off a God who wants to work in and through his people. Your usefulness in the hands of God doesn't come down to what you say of yourself, but of what he says of you. Now that doesn't mean that you can have all sorts of piles of failure and you can do absolutely everything. There are some things and positions that the scripture talks about particular qualifications. So it doesn't mean like and anything goes. There are still repercussions for some of our actions. But there are so many things that we've called all Christians to. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, he didn't say, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you until such point that you make a mistake, in which point just, just retire, settle down. Now he says, all authority is given to me, gives the commission and says, guess what? I will be with you, not until you fail, I will be with you until the end of the age. The God who calls us has all authority is with us at all times by his spirit. And the person with nothing or the person with little who trusts God has a lot. Even more so, the person who has little or nothing but wholeheartedly trusts God has everything. We may not be called to be the exact same as Peter, but we are called to be his disciples, following him, proclaiming him, using the gifts which he has given us to be of benefit and blessing to the household of faith, but also to an unbelieving world. But please do not look at any part of the scriptures where God is calling his people towards particular things and think, not me. I've failed too many times. He couldn't possibly use me. But recall Peter and so many who have gone before him who own their failures, who brought them before God in repentance and as they trusted him wholeheartedly by the power secured by Jesus' death, dealt with the sin and the shame, by the power of the resurrection enables to walk in newness of life. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, all of us have failed you far more than even the people closest to us are even aware. Lord, we thank you that you know our every weakness. You know our every failing. Yet you haven't said, whoop, that's it. You've done too much. We thank you that your grace was sufficient for all. Not that we should abuse it and have us just a safety net to do whatever we would like. But Lord, it would be the very desire of our own heart that is the desire of your heart that we might be growing in sanctification, that we might be conformed more and more to the image of your Son. Not so much by our effort and ability, but by the enabling of your Spirit as we cling to you for all things. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us and we thank you for the, the message and the ministry that you've entrusted to us. And Lord, we, we look forward not only just to, to knowing the things that you have declared in your word, 
but seeing you in all of your glory when one day we see you face to face. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. So next week, we'll